You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 47 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 5th of June, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Asha King. Hey, everybody. Tommy Potterston. Good morning, everyone. And the occasional lady, Jessie Carnes. Yes, I love that new name for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. We've got you back. And are we maybe going to see a little bit more of you in the future? You, yes, you are. Um, the reasoning of that is I just graduated with my bachelor's degree. Congratulations. Woohoo. Yes. And I think, l- listeners, you need to be aware, like, Jessie, for the last two years, yep. has been the head coach at Surf Simply doing her everyday tasks and working very, very hard at that and then running off home in the evenings. And writing papers. And writing <laughs> papers and attending online seminars. Yep. And so you now have a bachelor's in... Exercise science. Congratulations. Yep. That's really awesome. Oh, man. It's been... Very, very proud of you. Yeah, thank you. I really have no idea what to do with free time now. <laughs> I'm like, I can go for another surf or I can come to podcast. Yes. You're just going to start binge watching Netflix. Already done that. <laughs> <laughs> what about you guys? What have you been up to? Tell me. Uh, lots of surfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of looking after puppies. Yeah. Uh, we went to Nicaragua with the team. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that, was that was a great a trip. trip. Yeah. yeah it's trip. been a big break. That Nicaragua trip was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been up to, Ash? Yeah. Pretty much. Um, yeah. Since the Nicaragua trip, I've been on a bit of a surf drought, actually. Came back and, and we, we're pretty lucky for waves in Costa Rica. We pretty much always have surf. So having a little bit of a drought's okay. But yeah, in Nicaragua, I was all fired up on, on board design and I was riding a lot of funky boards and, and then I came back and have had the same interest and then the waves just haven't been there. So I got a lot of thoughts popping around my head and, and, and fin configurations and boards I want to ride that, that I haven't quite uh, had the chance to. For listeners that haven't seen it, we posted a little video on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram the other day, which uh, some of you might want to check out. Where, uh, we've got a little experiment lined up to uh, play around with some different fin configurations and See what, uh, see how much loading we're putting through the fins in different configurations. Oh, I cannot fun. wait to play around with that. Yeah. yeah, super exciting. I ripped apart an MR pretty hard up in uh, northern Nicaragua that I'm now putting on ice for board experiment. Yeah, board. You, you went, you went traveling further north. When we all came back from Nicaragua, you went, you went off up to. Yeah. Um. So I, I really, really like northern Nicaragua. It doesn't get the all-day offshore winds that southern Nicaragua does, but it's a re- there's a couple really good setups wave-wise. And um, yeah, I, I, I trashed the quiver pretty hard up there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of really heavy waves that break really close to the shore. And yeah, I, I actually tore one of my back fins off my twin fin. Oh, bummer. It's amazing how well it worked up there. You think that the more powerful the wave, kind of the more performance shortboard you want. But I found that you know, the waves weren't necessarily that tall up there, but they had a lot of curve to them. They're really, really round waves. And I was just had too much rail line on my standard shortboard. My, my standard shortboard is a 510. So I, um, I rode a 5.5 twin fin a lot. And there were people just tripping out on it out there. Like, ah, oh, it's a small wave board. And I, it actually worked really, really well in the rounder waves, which spurred quite a lot of research into twin fins that we're going to talk about later in the show. But, um, 
Yeah, that is the it. method to my my madness. Looking forward to it. So, uh, have you been up to much, Jesse, other than uh, other than graduating? Um, yeah, actually, well, you and I have been up to a lot. We've been working on the new Tree of Knowledge, listeners. Yes, very um, excited about it. Yeah, super exciting. The Tree of Knowledge 2.0. For those Indeed. of you have been to uh, Surf Simply, you know our Tree of Knowledge, and Harry, Rue, and myself, and actually a bunch of the other coaches have been participating in creating a better tree of knowledge yeah and for, for listeners that don't know what we're talking about uh, i'll put a link into the show notes but but we have uh, when we started surf simply uh, seven years ago we came up with this sort of flow chart if you like for for learning to surf all the different skills tried to break down all the the basics and, and create this flow chart and after seven years of, <laughs> of rigorous testing we sort of feel like we found most of the holes so we're we're going back into it trying to tweak the chart out and and, and make it as it accurate and efficient as we can and uh, then i think the hope is get it out into the wider world and maybe maybe even digitize it maybe yeah. turn it into a little app yes i would be so have exciting. any listeners have any experience with with building apps maybe you want to help us out a little bit but yeah that's uh, that that's that's kind of the next the next goal once we get it all finalized so yes yeah i think, you- I think we're pretty close now it was just really funny working with you and Rue because we had so much coming out of our brains from the last seven years of just putting it all together. <laughs> and you guys, we finally did it. <laughs> yeah. no, it's good. Just before we go into the news, just one quick correction from uh, the last episode. We were talking about the shark infestation in Southern California. And I, I think I mentioned that they, there hadn't been too many negative or dangerous interactions. And I think I said that there hadn't been any attacks. And uh, so Henning Schwab got in touch and pointed out that there, there has been one person bitten. But as of right now, I believe that that, uh, that lady is recovering well. So yes, good luck to her. And thank you, Henning, for uh, pulling us up on that. Okay, going into the news, and uh, sadly, two fairly prominent members of the uh, surf community have passed away this week. John Severson, who was editor-in-chief at Surf Magazine for a long time, passed away early last week. And just two days ago, as we're recording, uh, Jack O'Neill passed away as well. Two fairly upstanding and important members of the community. I mean, two people that had almost more influence on surfing than any others. I mean, yeah. Jack O'Neill, obviously, uh, the first guy to make the, the surfing wetsuit, but John Severson pretty much pioneered surf media. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the surf first filmmakers, releasing his first surf film in the late 50s, yeah. and then starting that little side booklet project that ended up evolving into Surfer Magazine. So, yeah. And he yeah. was at the helm of Surfer until well into the 70s, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. And, he, it, and you know, the, it was Surfer Magazine that commissioned all the travel stories that you know, really kind of came to define what surfing is. But, you know, we, we think now of surfing as being all about traveling and going to places, but really that was a byproduct of the surf media through the 60s and into the 70s. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, he really uh, pushed that. So, so what we think of as surfing nowadays and surf culture, like that was huge influence in that. Yeah, it, it's a real big loss, but it's, it's a great life to celebrate, you know, somebody yeah. like that that did so much that it, He's, he's really someone to look up to in surfing. Jack, Jack O'Neill as well. Heavy week of, uh, of deaths. Greg Allman died as well. Yeah, I yeah. know. This is like so sad. All these legends are going down. So yeah, uh, thoughts with the, uh, our thoughts with the families of, of those two guys. Sad week. Um, Led Hamilton has managed to cause a little kerfuffle in amongst all the uh, ups and downs of the, the shark infestation that we mentioned in, in Southern California at the moment. Led Hamilton got caught by a, a TV interview crew. And I think it's fair to say probably said some things he might regret. 
Yeah, I don't think he was thinking about that. It looked like when they interviewed him that he was rushing to go somewhere. Like his hair was all a mess. He had like coffee in his hand. And then they just spurred this like really good question that does need to be thought about on him. And he just blurred out whatever was on his mind. I, I thought it was terrible. Yeah, I feel like TMZ, when TMZ puts a microphone in your face, that might not be the person to uh, open up to. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you can go to some some better news outlets, but so, I don't know. So for those of you guys that haven't haven't seen this, Laird Hamilton made a, a fairly strong statement that uh, women who are on their period may be uh, at significantly higher risk of being attacked by a shark due yeah. to the uh, scent of blood in the water. <laughs> yeah, he said that the most common reason for shark attacks is a woman on her period <laughs> due to obvious blood in the water. Which, of course, is non- nonsense. Um, the Florida Museum, there's, uh, there's a website uh, called Florida Museum run by the University of Florida, and the, the ratio of male to female attacks is 9.2 to 1. <laughs> so, yeah. so unless the majority of those men's are uh, menstruating, it's just a complete nonsense statement. I mean, even, even if the amount of blood... That, I mean, I lose more blood when I cut my leg in the water. Exactly, yeah. And the average person loses about 30 to 40 milliliters of blood not in an instant, but over the course of several days. Yeah. Uh, the max would be kind of 80 mils. So even if you did just like, no offense, ladies, but even if you just did <laughs> pump it out in one, um, it's going to be like a third of a cup of human blood. Um, and it's super unlikely that sharks, uh, will, that it will send sharks into a feeding frenzy. I have got some good stats here. Uh, the great white shark can probably detect a drop of blood in about 100 liters of water which is about one twenty-fifth of a thousandth of the Im- uh, amount of water in the Olo- Olympic pool. So if you compare that to the ocean, it's, it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It also, I think one of the articles that I was reading about it said that sharks are more attracted to amino acids, which are also found in urine yes. and in sweat. And in sweat well, that, yeah. was, that was what they, I mean, that was the one that I'd heard was that, that urine in the water is, is by far and away more likely to bring, still very unlikely, but, but by far and away, the most likely thing to, to bring sharks in is urine in the water. Yeah. I love debunking Laird. <laughs> Out of everyone. He's like, he's the most fun. Yeah. I feel like, man, people just must catch him at a wrong time or maybe just really nervous when he gets interviewed or I don't know. Honestly, his contributions to surfing are like, und- are, they're undeniable. But I mean, when you look at him, he just looks like a crazy dad at the car park <laughs> at my local surf spot. And the stuff he says is just, it's just out of control. <laughs> um, yeah. On other animal surfer news, uh, Mick Fanning has had a spider named after him. Yeah. A little water spider. In the most Aussie piece of news this month. <laughs> <laughs> I would say only in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's I, it's not that it was a, an unknown species of spider, but I think it, it's, a, it's a subspecies of an existing family of, of spiders. And so it's been given a Latin name that that, that is... You're our resident biologist, uh, Tommy. Do you want to... Uh, I'll give it a go. Yeah, it's a, a Pissoridae McFanningi spider. There we go. Oh, it's McFanningi. <laughs> it's a kind of water spider. <laughs> noted, noted for its peculiar genitalia, I believe. I don't know whether someone knows something about McFanning that we don't. But, uh, <laughs> a vengeful ex-girlfriend found that spider. <laughs> what if you had a phobia to spiders, specifically the McFanning spider? What if, what if you had a phobia of McFanning? Are you scared of the spider? <laughs> But how um, cool is that? Have yeah. an animal or an insect named after you? That's yeah. so cool. It's a lot of reverence for surfing in Australia. Yeah. You? Interestingly, 
I did hear something once, and I, I haven't fact-checked this, but it was from a reasonably credible source. But they were saying that if you wanted to find a new species and have a species named after you, the best place you could go and look. Any thoughts? Costa Rica. Costa Rica, or maybe the Amazon. Basically, anybody's backyard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, there's so many of all the little bugs and microbes and stuff that just live in your soil that most of them have just never been, you know, they're just, oh, it's just bugs. Like, nobody's ever, like classified them but yeah you know a backyard in in london in england or or jacksonville in florida mm-hmm. would be just as good you'd be just as likely to find something that's completely not unknown to science but certainly unclassified mm-hmm. you know it'd be again a bit like this water spider is it would be a a slight variation on a family group that that has not been documented i feel like there's so many unidentified spiders in costa rica i'll see a spider <laughs> on my wall and be like what is that <laughs> what species is it? it's the tommy spider <laughs> Very good. So one other thing that's come up this week, got an email from our favorite surfing historian, Matt Warshaw, to let us know that the three sites that he's been running, the History of Surfing, the Encyclopedia of Surfing, and Above the Raw, which is a a sort of compendium of interviews, are all now live. And they look fantastic. Listeners, if you're even somewhat interested in the history of surfing, it's $3 a month and it is so worth it. Yeah. If you also want an easy way to just erase all of your free time, just <laughs> get spending an afternoon on that website. I spent a ridiculous amount of time yesterday, and it's he's just done such a good job compiling so much surfing data. He's he's definitely the shining literary beacon of our of our sport. Yeah, the the, the really cool thing that uh, he's done is, as you say, that the three sites interlink with each other. So you start looking at I don't know off the wall surf spot in Hawaii. And that then links you through to Mark Richards. So you bounce through to the history of surfing about Mark Richards. And that will then bounce through to an interview on Above the Raw with Mark Richards from, from whenever it was. And the, the, the cool thing with this, you know, I got at the resort copies of all three of his books. But they're mm-hmm. obviously, you know, a book can't be updated and can't, can't be adapted. And the cool thing is these three sites are, are living, breathing versions of those books and, and will continue to get bigger. And the, the really big bit, and I, so I would say, you know, it, it even if, if reading the articles isn't a huge thing for you, if, if you're the sort of person that's listening to this podcast, then I assume that, you know, that the surf history and surf culture is kind of something that you're interested in and is important to you. And the huge thing that Matt Warshaw is doing that, that the $3 a month funds is just trawling through, you know, back issues of surf magazines that have been out of print for 30 years and then uploading the information and the interviews onto these sites. So it, it just a phenomenal effort at, at, you know, one man archiving an entire sport. Yeah, between Matt Sh- Warshaw and the guys at the Surfers Journal, I feel really fortunate that there's people like that documenting the lore of surfing because it really is. It's, there's so many interesting stories and interesting people and interesting tales throughout it. And, and if those guys weren't writing it down, then it, it would just disappear yeah, oh. I, th- I think particularly, you know, so many sports, you think of, I don't know, soccer or, or baseball or something like that, where so much of the law is contained within the, the stats of each game. Mm-hmm. And there are people that, you know, real st- enthusiastic sports fans that are, you know, really get into the stats and pull all of those things out of it. And surfing's so interesting in that so much of the sport takes place away from the pitch, if you like, you know, the, yeah. the history of the sport, the competitive history is such not a small part but it's definitely a a minority of our history is Mm -hmm. is the professional competitive 
element to it. And, and so, so much of the, the history and the lore really needs to be sort of unearthed and, and, and excavated because it's not there sitting in the stats for, for, you know, the 1965 season. One final piece of news that I wanted to touch on, I got an email from some guys that have set up a little sort of fundraising and awareness campaign called Fin for a Fin. The idea that, that by having a specially marked up set of fins in your surfboard, it's almost like a, a sort of DNR bracelet. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get hit by a shark, please don't go after the shark in, uh, in retaliation. Yeah. Uh, which I think is kind of a cool idea. I, d- I did have a bounce back and forth with them because I, I always feel that these projects that revolve around fins, you know, the fins that people want to use on the board are so specific, you know, mm-hmm. for, for me, you know, the number of people that are going to want a medium sized thruster template is quite a limited proportion of the population. But uh, I, I actually emailed back to the guys and they said, no, we've got some some stickers and, and T-shirts and towels and things like that on the site as well. And if the campaign goes well, then they're, they're working with Glide Fins, which is an Australian fin company that does have quite a few different templates to hand. So, you know, hopefully if these guys get it working, then they'll have a few more fin templates. But in the meantime, you can uh, you can whack a sticker onto the board in there if you uh, support that campaign. Yeah, I think it's so great to support because a lot of people don't realize how many sharks, you know, are killed a year and and awareness of sharks in general and that they're not these scary creatures, but yet they're just part of the ocean and part of being out there. So I think it's great. We just watched the Women's Fiji Pro that was happening last week, and it wasn't as exciting as the year before. I think the year before got everyone really hyped up on women surfing in Fiji and at cloud break. They had waves before the contest. Pumping waves they before had, the contest. Yeah. Listeners, if you haven't seen Courtney Conalogs or Chris Moore's Instagram account, I think Tyler writes too, they have some amazing photos of women surfing cloud break at enormous surf. And I just wish that was happening during the contest time. But we had Courtney Conalog in the final with Tatiana Weston Webb. It was really interesting to watch. Did you guys watch it at all? Yeah, I did watch the final. So the, the final was interesting as well because it actually took place outside of the waiting period. Yeah. Um, it was meant to be the start of the men's contest. And the the women, they ran through, I think, round four and the quarters and the semis and then went on hold and the conditions just didn't improve. And so they called yeah. the contest off with no swell on the horizon. Exactly. And then made the decision to extend by by one day to, to finish the final, which... So- came to the final and the girls had pumping waves <laughs> yeah like pumping almost too pumping yeah. almost too pumping yeah um i feel like too the swell was i don't know it it just didn't it seemed maybe too early because the girls were pulling into barrels or maybe it was their technique um and maybe just because they didn't have the practice but tatiana weston webb was pulling into huge barrels and just getting worked if you guys want to watch some wipeouts i think you can go on the wsl Oh, and that um, one Courtney Conlog took on the head. Yes. She had, oh, Courtney had three really, really special wipeouts as well. <laughs> yeah, I like the I like the adjective used to describe there. They were special they wipeouts. Were very special. They were. She'll remember those forever. Forever. Yeah. No, I think it just shows that it it's not easy, but it's easier to go out on a day like that where it's big and unruly. 
and sit on a big board and wait for the right wave and, and, and get a, you know, maybe get the wave of your life. But when you're confined to 35 minute heats, right. I mean, two big scores in 35 minute heats in solid waves, there's just not that many opportunities. So. Right. And I think like the week before when they did have the bigger surf, they were probably being a little bit more selective. They had all day to surf that wave, therefore maybe getting some makeable barrels. I think as well that, the, you know, they ran the women's final pretty early in the day. And it did seem that as the tide dropped through the morning and they started to run the men's heats, you know, the first few men's heats, none of them were making the barrels right. either. And then as the day progressed, either the, I don't know whether it was the tide changing or just the swell becoming a little bit more organized, but the guys started making some of the barrels. And by the, by the middle of the day, it was pretty good. Yeah, I would have liked to hear a little bit more about how, if they felt nervous from the final or the waves, because if you watched it when the surf was a little bit smaller, Obviously, those two girls deserve to be in the final. But when the waves were smaller, they were going so much more vertical and being more towards that critical section. And when the waves were bigger for the final, Courtney Conalog was kind of steering away from those potentially vertical maneuvers. She was staying very horizontal. And um, yeah, I was a little shocked that she didn't charge as hard as she potentially could have. So, What about, the, do you guys watch the rest of the contest? I watched Bits and Bobs. Yep. See the little highlights. I watched most of it. I was uh, disappointed with Stephanie Gilmore. I think she didn't push herself. She looked almost scared. Yeah. I'm not sure what you thought. Um, she's pretty comfortable out there as well. The waves are honestly really small. If you look back over, they were shoulder high cloud break. It's really hard to work with yeah. a really small, shallow wave. Um, unfortunately, yeah, the waves just didn't deliver. So I think it was luck of the draw, really, uh, with the girls out there. But Tyler Wright, being previous world champion, um, she's still now first and overall holding the yellow jersey still. She did really good in the smaller surf as well as the bigger surf too. What's going on with Carissa Moore? She, to me, when I watch her surf, just seems head and shoulders better than everybody. Pretty, I mean, I think she's the best female surfer technically ever. But her contest results just, for whatever reason, aren't there. What's, do you think there's just maybe that... that- um, that killer instinct, maybe just. Isn't. I think that must be it. But then you know the, the 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 years that she's won her world title, you know she's gone out there and she's been aggressive and taken people down. So there was a period where she was head and shoulders above everybody else on tour. And has everybody else caught up, or has she just lost? You know, three world titles in, has she lost some of that fire? I think uh, just a recent edit of hers, that Morocco edit, her power and technique is just so good. I, I, I do think that she's, I think there's two females that stand above the rest. I think Stephanie Gilmore stylistically and aesthetically is, is a bit better than everyone else. And I think power wise, Carissa Moore is just, is she, she's like the Aki of female surfing. She's crazy. So I, I'm really hoping that she finds that form again. I think too, like what you said earlier, Asher, they only have 30 minutes. That's to, hard. Yeah. That's really hard to get two perfect waves and, yeah, maybe she just, you know, just got a couple unlucky or like Harry said, maybe overthinking things. She has three world titles already. Uh, that's a lot of pressure on someone to do for a fourth, fifth, kind of like Stephanie Gilmore. So yeah, even for the listeners, next time you're out for a surf, just put 30 minutes on your clock and <laughs> see how many good waves you catch in that time. I always know I, I try to surf every day before work. And like when I hit the 30 minute mark, I'm like, oops, maybe I can catch one more wave. Maybe yeah. I can get one more good one. I also like to and I, I do the same thing as Asher and I like to judge myself, give myself a score. 
and try to improve on that score too. I think it's a really good drill for when you're out surfing. What did you score in your morning surf today? <laughs> Low twos. <laughs> 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 men's event is going on right now. Pretty yeah. excited about that. They so got exciting. lots of swell. Yeah, the men's event has been really good. Really, really upset that Owen Wright's out. Oh, I'm so sad. That's right. basically where we are in the event right now for the listeners. We just finished round two and we're halfway through round three. So we'll probably be a little deeper by the time this uh, podcast comes out. But yeah, we just lost Owen Wright and Medina last night. Pretty sad about both of those. But Ian Gavir, who Ian beat Owen Wright, did get two really, really good waves. Two double barrels. Really impressed with him and, and his surfing. I didn't really know much about him, but he looks like a Brazilian Mason Ho. But yeah, I'm super excited to see uh, Sebastian Zietz surf again because his uh, round two was incredible. And Jeremy Flores as well scored really highly. I'm still holding out for one more Slater victory. <laughs> yes, I'm in. Yeah, I'm the same as you, Asher. I feel like for us in Nassara, there's not much going on, but having this contest on, like you run home, like, yes, I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, all of that, just going back to the women's contest uh, on our Fantasy Surfer League, uh, we had a three way tie for first at Fiji. Paul's over the four claims, Crustoceans, and Shonuff. Uh, you guys all tied for first place. But overall, Ad Rocks is still in the lead, although there are quite a few people within striking distance. So it's still very tight in the women's tour. The next event for the women, though, is now not until the end of summer. Boo! US Open on the 31st of July. The world's worst CT contest. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Just as a question, do the ladies not surf as many contests as the men? No, they don't. They've got one uh, less, I think. One less. Yeah. Stop. The yeah, US up, Open. To, up to May, they're thriving. But then once June comes around, minus Chopu, minus J-Bay, plus Huntington Beach. <laughs> mm. So not a great trade. No, not, not at trade. all. It would be so cool to see the girls there as well. Um, such a shame. I think the women at J-Bay would be incredible because that's a really technique-based wave. Yeah. And, and I mean, imagine Steph Gilmore at, you know, eight foot super tubes. Whew. I would like to see them at Pipe. I know they do like a special heat for some of the women, but it would be really nice to see them all surfing that wave. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I've been really interested in fish designs and twin fin designs. And I rode an MR twin fin a lot over the last couple of months through Nassara and in Nicaragua. And a lot of people have asked me about it and a lot of people have compared it to other different fish designs. And I think the history of fishes and 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 the different designs sometimes get a little bit blended together. So today I'm going to do a bit of a, uh, a historical analysis of that sector of surfing. Very cool. So the fish has become one of the most umbrella terms in surfing. And by that I mean Basically, anything is called a fish now that's slightly shorter and slightly wider than your standard shortboard. I mean, yeah. if you look at basically any retailer in the world, they're going to have a fish model. But each little segment of the fish's evolution has had such a rich design history, and so each one has um, evolved to do things so differently that I think it's really important to keep them segmented. Yeah. So looking at the history of the fish, I think there's three big kind of pinnacles of design that stand out. The first is what I would call a twin fin, which is popularized by the surfing of Mark Richards in the late 70s, propelled him to four world titles, and was really a small wave design. The next would be the modern fish, is what I would call it. And that came to fruition in the late 90s, 
pretty much pushed by Matt Biolis and the Lost Gang with 5.5 five and 19 a quarter. The, the, the sort of high-performance fish. Yeah, the high-performance fish, kind of the antithesis to the 90s shortboard. And it was really kind of exploded on the scene by the surfing of Andy Irons and, and Corey Lopez, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and then the design that spurred the previous two, which is, in my opinion, the biggest seismic shift in surfboard design maybe ever. You know, that's arguable, but it's definitely in the top three biggest things that totally changed the way that surfers looked at a wave. And that's the, the list fish. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit about the list, list fish in episode 35, but it was created in the late 60s in San Diego County and stayed pretty underground for the next five years. And it was pretty much just polished off by Steve Liss and some of his disciples. Yeah, and that's for, for listeners that aren't sure what we mean by a list fish. It's it's what's quite often referred to as a retro fish or a, a keel fin. Yeah, fish. Um, it's that that sort of rounded nose, very wide tail, and then normally like big keel fins rather than rather than anything approaching a normal thruster. The the keel fin's basically the iconic fish. If you if you've heard of the the fish surfboard, it's that. <laughs> Um, really classic looking retro board with the parallel rails, round nose, and, and, and big swallow tail. And that's where we're going to start this discussion off. I've always been pretty infatuated with the design, but when I was doing research, I was really blown away with how well thought out each design aspect was. Nothing really came by accident in that board, which is pretty unique how he just took so many little pieces and, and, and put them together. To understand Liss's design, I think it's really important to start the story uh, with the area that created it and the area that birthed it, which is San Diego County, late 60s. For the listeners who might not be familiar with the waves around North San Diego County, there's a lot of really powerful, small waves. So we would call them now maybe ledgy waves or, or, or slabby waves, but they're waves that pack a lot of punch without the height. So they might not necessarily get very tall, but they're definitely waves that call for certain pieces of design. That's also, Asher, one of the misconceptions with fishes, aren't they? That it's made for a really small, soft wave. Yeah, and that's basically the original one was designed to surf these really powerful waves. Uh, Steve Liss and a lot of his peers were kneeboarders, uh, which were a lot of what the most revolutionary surfers in the late 60s were because of the waves that they grew up in. Uh, around San Diego, with those style of waves, stand-up surfing hadn't quite evolved to surf them. There was a lot of uh, revolutionary stand-up surfing going on in that time period. You had guys surfing pipeline. The first surfers were surfing backdoor. Big Sunset Beach was surfed. But those are on big, broad-faced waves on, on very long surfboards. And when you took those designs to Southern California, it didn't have the elongated curve of the wave that those boards fit. So most of the revolutionary surfing was happening on these kneeboards that you shrunk down and, and you weren't standing up on at all. Yeah, and it's, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because now we think of the fish as a really good small wave board because it has that wide tail block that we associate with small wave boards. It generates a lot of lift and a lot of power. But of course, what they were dealing with was having their feet on the back end of the board. They needed, you know, if you're going to take a traditional board design would say if you wanted a powerful wave, you need a narrower pulled in tail. Mm-hmm. But then you just end up with your feet hanging off the side of your kneeboarding. So. Yeah, which is, is basically that's the first piece of the puzzle that set the design in motion was uh, Steve Liss, who's a craftsman from an early age. He was shaping his own boards for him and his friends from 13 or 14. And as I said, they're kneeboarders, so they kicked into the wave and didn't need that long board length. 
they favored really tight pintails because they did hold in these steep hollow waves. But the problem was, and the, the kind of the glaring design flaw that they found is when they got up on their knees on the kneeboards, the fins drug on the side. The swim fins. Yeah, so they were just trying to go as fast as they could and they wanted to shoot through the waves, but they basically had you know, two fins just dragging through the water. Yeah. So he, he, it actually happened on the, the tiles of his parents' house because they were perfect 12-inch tiles and really, really easy to, to measure against butcher paper that he just drew two pintails on the tile each for hold, but that would cover his fins. So thus, that really iconic wide design was birthed. So the interesting part is that actually, because it's such a big deep swallowtail, the back 12 to 18 inches actually has a similar surface area to a pintail. Yeah. But it's split into two. And then it's only once you get forward of that up to about the you know, 18, 24 inch mark that you suddenly have this very wide I guess not tail block, but a, a, a lot of surface area up front. Yeah, I mean, if you were to, to split the design in half and kind of close your eyes and think of it, it's almost exactly the same outline as the way the board's being used to surf pipeline uh, at the time. Uh, but instead of one pintail, it's just putting two of them next to each other. Yeah. As a side effect, like you're saying, with that really wide tail block, it generated a tremendous amount of lift. So with his low center of gravity, he had a board that was not sliding out. Um, because of the really sharp tail area, but also generating much more speed. So it's like, whoa, you know, all of a sudden we're onto something. Outside of San Diego in the late 60s, there was a lot of big radical advances being made in surfboard design. And what I think is really cool is that Steve Liss, he was a student and he took some of the most functional design aspects from different parts of, of the community and, and really pieced them together nicely on, on his. So in regards to the outline of the surfboard, we obviously talked about that really wide tail block. And with a short length, uh, there wasn't much curve needed nose to tail. When we talk about how a surfboard turns, a, a surfboard's turning radius is really a function of its length versus the amount of curve in the rail outline. When you have a lot of curve, a really elliptical surfboard, you're going to be able to be turning more radically and more aggressively up and down the wave because the board fits the wave's curve really nicely like a glove. But with a straighter outline, you're going faster. With the short board that the kneeboarding allowed, he could straighten the outline for speed, but because the surfboard wasn't that long, it would still fit an aggressive curve of the wave. Yeah, well, it, basically, the, the straighter the rail, the more rail engagement you're getting at any one time. You know, you get the rail locked in. Now, if you've got a, a nine-foot board with a straight rail, that's really, really locked into the wave face mm -hmm. when you're trimming across the wave. So that could be quite hard to break out. If you were to then have a bit more of a curved rail, you know, as you, as you move your weight on the board, the, the rail disengages fairly smoothly and evenly. The advantage with the fish, I guess, is that, is that because it's, yes, it's got this very straight rail, mm -hmm. but in general, you know, guys are riding them at, you know, 510 is a big fish. Yeah, and, uh, and at the time, the stand-up versions, the longest ones were 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. Yeah, so you're, you're really, even though you've got a straight rail, by comparison to the nine-foot longboards that were being ridden at the same time, it's actually, just dramatically smaller. you've got way, way less rail, so way more maneuverability than you would have had out of a, a, a 60s longboard. Absolutely. So just going over the design parts we've talked now, we've got a really short board with a really wide tail. All of this contributes to speed. You know, the, the board right now is, 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 has almost too much speed, and which makes it very hard to control. Um, to deal with that, Liss borrowed features that was being developed outside of San Diego in surfing, particularly the down rail. 
The down rail is a rail shape that was developed by Dick Brewer in Hawaii, um, which was essentially just to control speed. Hawaii was pretty much the epicenter for boards that go fast because of the size and power of the waves. They were just naturally going to be subjected to a lot of speed. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, you know, the, the old 60s surfboards had those real rounded 50-50 rails. Mm-hmm. And that's great because as the water flows up the wave face, it wraps around the rail and really grips onto the board. But the downside is that that creates quite a lot of drag. It really slows you down. And that was why, you know, they used to say that pipeline was almost an unsurfable wave. You know, you couldn't get going fast enough. And so Brewer's tucked under edge, but it, it had this sort of down curve and then a hard, almost like a 90 degree edge at the bottom of the board. And, and the way that boards with hard edges, you know, and a, a wooden layer is a really good example. You know, the, the, the rail itself is only half an inch thick. The way that they grip a wave is they actually sort of cut a ledge into the wave face that the board sits on. Now, the advantage there is there's much less traction with the wave. So you go way, way faster. The downside is it's all on the surfer to set that rail and you know as you take off have lots of inside edge pressure to really engage that rail and and cut the initial ledge that the board's going to sit on and at that point the board then goes like a rocket they work really well in steeper waves as soon as you get onto a softer wave you can imagine it going from a steep wave and the board's almost at 90 degrees to the water flow Mm -hmm. that ledge concept works really really nicely now run the board out onto the shoulder and you've got that really soft, that ledge cutting technique doesn't work very well. And so now you see on, on most modern shortboards, you'll get the front edge of the board is pretty rounded, pretty 50-50, and then it goes back to a tucked under edge in the middle. And that allows you a modern board to surf both tight in the pocket and the steep edge and then out onto the shoulder where the, uh, the slope of the wave is a little softer. Yeah, but yeah. The, the, the tucked under edge was super important because it was the first thing that allowed people to start making these steep barreling, you know, what had basically been considered unsurfable waves through most of the 50s. Boards suddenly had the straight line speed to make those sections. So, yeah, so now people can surf those waves like wind and sea, bird rock, and all these slabby little tight-faced waves that before there, there just wasn't any way. Yeah. So the last piece of the puzzle was the fins. And these are probably the most iconic part of the fish. With that width in the tail, it generates a lot of lift and has a tendency to slide out. What List did was using a really rigid material, marine plywood, using a lot of base for hold and putting the, these big upright fins right out next to the rail, which did an excellent job holding in the wave face without causing any drag. You know, With these big keel fins, water still flows freely between them. So you had a design that was holding well for him, particularly with a low center of gravity, but still allowing him to go fast enough to, to make these waves and kind of surfing the way that he, that he imagined. Yeah. And all in all, it was a, it was a revolutionary design. Uh, it, there was nothing else that looked like it at the time, uh, but it didn't catch on right away. You know, San Diego in the late 60s was, it sounds crazy now, but it was really far removed from the surf community as I, a whole. I think the big thing as well is, is, you know, now we think of San Diego as really quite a, quite a nice place. Yeah. And, and back then it was a very blue collar. Absolutely. Community. You had the naval dockyards there. Yeah. So you had these guys just shredding on kneeboards down there. Some of the older local guys gave them a try and it turned out they worked really good well on their feet. But there wasn't any media exposure down there. You know, there wasn't anybody going down there and videoing them surf and the waves were pretty much off limits to people from the outside as well. That was some of the most heavy localism 
in our sport of surfing was, you know, wind and sea in the late 60s. So the design really didn't get much exposure. That all changed when a couple of Bing Copeland team riders, some of the listeners might have heard of Bing Surfboards, really, really big brand now. Um, A couple of the team riders were taken down there by a local and allowed to surf the spots. One of them was style demigod David Nueva, who was just making the transition from longboard surfing and nose ride heavily influenced surfing of the early 60s to sort of the shortboard revolution. Dave sort of had a tough transition from longboards to shortboards, and he saw this little Stevie Liss ripping on the kneeboard and, and thought immediately that, you know, that's something I need to get my, my hands on. So he sort of quietly talked to him a little bit about it, got information on the board and went away and designed his own. A couple years later, world title contest, the, the world championships in 1972 at Oceanside was held in terrible surf. Nueva came with a fish and pretty much smoked everyone. The, the number one and two position in the contest were one on that fish design, which Nueva totally credited uh, for, for himself. He said, you know, a David <laughs> Nueva design um, innovated in Hawaii, um, which the guys from San Diego were not too happy about. Yeah. So uh, morning of the finals, they actually stole Nueva's board um, and it, it was kind of famously spray painted, you know, good luck, Dave. Uh, strung from the Oceanside Pier. No, I think they stuck a knife through the deck. Yeah, yeah, I think it was pretty torn up. But um, yeah, once the board had that kind of exposure, you know, the 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 fish was released to the wild. You know, it pretty it, it it caught on pretty fast. Yeah, and then that led to the uh, the Mark Richards design a few years later. Yeah, basically, once that fish was seen to win there, there was a lot of guys that took a lot of interest in it, and a young Hawaiian by the name of Reno Abelera. He started riding the design a lot in Hawaii, went down to Australia. Uh, he actually had a 5-3 of it and, and did amazing in the contest scene down there. A young kid in Newcastle at the time, Mark Richards, saw the design and he kind of planted the seed for him. Yeah. And it, it, you know, back then, the professional surfing circuit is just kind of starting to get going. And the standard board is that, that 1970s teardrop I mean, basically Brewer miniguns. Yeah, exactly. Variations on Brewer miniguns, which worked fantastically if you're in Hawaii with a you know massive, big, powerful wave. And they just work terribly in the sort of surf that all the rest of us deal with on a day-to-day basis. Oh, it's like a nightmare for other surfboard and small, choppy yeah. E-stars. And, uh, well, and, and, you know, particularly Mark Richards is 6'4", I think, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's quite lightly built, but he's a really tall, big guy. And, uh, you know, trying to ride these little pintails in rubbish, crumbly little surf, I think, you know, the the surface area in the back end of those twin fins just really gave them a lot more speed to uh, play with. Yeah. And here's sort of where the fish story gets fun is that they, the design was made for big waves. You know, everything about it screamed, I want to ride. Although at least powerful. Yeah. I want to ride powerful waves. But, with that wide tail block and with the short size, the way the board both generated the speed to surf these small crummy waves and was small enough that was maneuverable in the tighter face that these small short interval swells yeah. provide. So, you know, although it was made for powerful surf, it really thrived in small waves too. So Mark Richards, you know, he, he grew up, was in the, the, the circuit and he would always do really well in bigger waves, but on those brewer style waves, he was just too big of a guy to surf them. So, uh, he went to the design board and said, you know, what can give me an advantage in small waves? And he took the list fish 
He said, all right, that's it. You know, it, it has the speed. But he then changed it a bit to accommodate the style of contest surfing that was scored at the time. So instead of going sub five feet, he extended it a bit to make it look a little bit normal. As soon as the board is a little longer, you got to take the tail in to gain maneuverability. So he did those cuts in the tail. I think he also took a bit of inspiration from the uh, the stingers. The, oh, yeah. The, the Apaya stingers. So. Yeah, the Apaya stingers from the South Shore. So um, he added the stinger in the tail. He lost the keel fins and just put two big upright skegs on the side. So a more raked template. And I think the original ones, the fins were almost 12 inches long. So it was a pretty crazy looking design. Yeah. But just in the same way that the list fish immediately revolutionized surfing in Southern California, MR's design changed competitive surfing. I mean, yeah. he just absolutely blew everyone away. Well, that, that was then the four back-to-back world titles. Yeah, just no one could match him in small waves. And then Simon Anderson came along, added a third fin, and the thruster was born. Yeah. And at that point, the, the fish design pretty much got put to nothing but a novelty, and it really disappeared for, for almost 20 years. Yeah. As the thruster evolved, boards became narrower. We've talked a lot on the show on how silly 90s surfboards were you know they're 17 inches wide and 6'4 and uh, really not user-friendly designs uh, about as as unuser-friendly as possible and in the late 90s uh, Matt Biolis the shaper of Lost he was just pretty much a kid at the time looked back through the archives of surfing and and came back up with that list design he wanted to take his own modern spin. So to make the board surf more radically, he added a ton of curve to the outline, just really taking a lot away from the tail, rounding the nose almost a little bit more. It had a much more flat bottom contours. And yeah, the, the modern performance fish yeah. was was born. You know, again, he's a bigger guy. I think he's... Yeah, Biolis um, was, a, was a bear. Yeah, he's you a know, big guy. He's 6'3", 6'4", 200, 220. And again, you know, those little sticky shortboards... San Clemente summer waves and that modern, uh, the, the round-nosed fish that they came up with. Was it Corey and Shea Lopez? It was Corey Lopez and Andy Irons. Corey Lopez and Andy Irons uh, took that board to Hawaii and uh, really sort of showed it performing in good waves. But uh, I think the big thing there was that board just really struck home with a lot of people mm-hmm. in that this is, this is a board that's functional. This is a board that I can go out and surf without it being stressful. Yeah, I, I would say that board almost single-handedly kind of started to fire up that retro revolution. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it just, even for boards that weren't fishes, it brought that interest back to old designs that maybe ha- that could be updated from the past. So yeah. Yeah, it really revolutionized surfing from then on. So yeah, the fish just has a, such a rich history, and I'm pretty sure we could write a giant book on it. but Or, or make a documentary movie about it. Which I think might be out there. Indeed, yeah. If anyone uh, is interested in this, definitely check out the movie Fish. It's an awesome, uh, awesome little documentary about the history. I mean, it, it does focus in quite heavily on the Steve List fish mm-hmm. um, and doesn't touch so much on the other designs, but it's super, super interesting. I have a question. When I first started writing fishes, I had a lot of like slipping and stuff. What do you think would be like the common error for like the typical person? Ah, so... Basically, the further away that you get from the list design, the more user-friendly it is. Okay. To the point that the lost boards could pretty much be surfed in a similar manner that a, that a tri-fin shortboard was at the time. As you get more of a classic design and as you get closer to big keels and parallel rails, 
you have to surf the board from its rails. Almost the way that you know, guys surf Elias, it's, it is going to have that tendency to slip out and it is going to be a more inherently difficult design. But when you get it on the rail, it has all these benefits that you know, don't exist in almost anything else. So to answer your question, you probably need to surf it further forward on the surfboard where you're actually engaging that down rail that Harry was talking about. And, and yeah, probably, probably not push the turn. That's, that's one of the real problems is we've, we've all become very reliant on you know, thruster surfboards with relatively pulled in tails that you can halfway through the turn effectively just kick out with your back foot and, and push the board through the turn. And the problem with those push turns is they work fine, but you, you're really leaning on that back fin. And it's not efficient. It's not a good way to surf the board. It's just that you can get away with it on a thruster. And uh, surfing a, a wide-tailed, down-railed twin fin will really uh, show the hole in that logic. Uh, so going back a month or so now, myself and Jesse got the opportunity. We sat down with a gentleman that uh, some of you listeners may well be familiar with, a guy called Rob Case, who is something of a paddling guru. Uh, he's got lots of videos online where he talks about surfboard paddling technique, and he runs an online coaching clinics and seminars for, for paddling and swimming, as well as doing stuff out of his home base in San Francisco. But myself and Jesse were able to sit down and have a chat with him. Yeah, it was, it, he was really interesting. I was happy to know that the stuff that we were teaching our own students was not far off of what he had to say. So that was really cool. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. It was really interesting. And I learned a lot from, from this interview myself. And I guess we hope you guys do too. So joining us on the podcast this episode, we're very lucky we have Rob Case, who some of you listeners may have encountered. He has put series of videos up on YouTube discussing various different paddling techniques for surfing. You can find an awful lot of his stuff. He has his own website at surfingpaddling.com. But Rob, j- just before we dive in, for those listeners that, that you know, haven't encountered you before, who are you? How did you, uh, how did you get started doing this stuff? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I, I think I ask myself that question all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it actually was, was quite an accident that I started doing this for other people. I guess if we went back to the olden days, I, I'm a professionally trained swimmer. From the age of three, I started competing. And uh, it, it was one of those things where I was a, hate, a love-hate relationship. I loved being in the water, but I hated swimming and following a black line all day. As I, a lot of people kind of have that same relationship with swimming, unfortunately. But it, were, it really wasn't until about eighth grade when I found surfing and water polo where I started to enjoy swimming more because now I had a purpose. And it was after I'd gone to college. I'd gone to college in San Diego. I'd come back uh, to surf Ocean Beach, San Francisco, which is my local spot here. And it was a pretty sizable day. And, you know, like OB, you do the typical 20-minute paddle, and it turns into 30 minutes of paddling, and then 40 <laughs> minutes, and then you end up back on the beach. And um, it was really a humbling experience for me, because at that point, I'd never had that happen before. You know, a lot of my friends, they'd talk about noodle arms, or they couldn't get out, and, and I'd always have to kind of sarcastically go along with them and say, yeah, yeah, I'm really tired, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then I'd, I'd go and play a water polo game or I'd, or I'd swim for two hours after. Because for me, surfing never was a workout. And I never understood why, really. 
but that day got me thinking. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I kind of humbled myself and I thought to myself, oh, all right, well, uh, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go back out. Uh, but this time I'm going to change my stroke. I'm, instead of my water polo sprint stroke to try and get out there as fast as I can, and I'm going to alter it um, to more my long distance stroke, the one that like my open water swimming stroke. And, you know, I ended up getting out in about 15 minutes. And now I, I'm not saying that my changing of the stroke correlated to me getting out you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes sooner, but it definitely got me thinking that maybe my coaches were actually doing something good when they made us do drills and all this technique work. At the time, I just thought they were just trying to waste time. But mm -hmm. that, was, that was really when I started looking into paddling technique. And at the time, nobody had any studies on it. You know, this was late, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a ton of swimming studies. So what I did was I, I finally started to research what my coaches were researching and, and trying to tell me. So I studied like Doc Councilman and McGlisco and uh, the more modern ones like Terry Laughlin or Gary Hall Sr. or the guys over at John Hopkins that do studies on, on the different strokes. And what I would do is I would try a technique of theirs in the pool and then I'd try it on a board to see what was different. Did it work or did it not work? And so that basically through those those years of experimenting, I would keep the things that worked and get rid of the things that didn't work. And, you know, that was 15 years ago. And I just every year I just do something new. And, and that was something that you were doing really just for your own personal surfing at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And every once in a while in the lineup, uh, you know, I might see somebody and I... We'd get to talking and they might say, oh, my shoulder's been hurt. And I said, you know, have you ever tried to do this? And, and they would change it and they'd be like, oh, that felt great. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, and then I'd kind of write that observation down and, and try and figure out why that was the case. But, you know, over this, this time period, you know, now I'm kind of growing up and I can no longer do the three-hour surf session and then the two hours in the pool and then the hour in the gym. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a job. I had gotten married. Responsibilities. And, yeah. uh, and so that's when I developed, after my first kid was born, I really had no time. So I had to decide, do I surf or do I swim to stay in shape? And I didn't really want to give up either. So I, I developed I, what now is the X-Swim program. And mm -hmm. it basically combines swimming and gym work and yoga all into an hour. And that way I could still surf and I could still do X-Swim and get my workout and get my surfing in. It was funny because those, those early years of doing it, people were looking at me at the pool going, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> like I had this one lady, she's like, are you training for the Navy SEALs? I'm like, no, no, I'm not training for the Navy SEALs. I'm just <laughs> surfing. For those listeners that, that haven't seen your X-Swim program, it, it, it involves swimming lengths and then getting onto the side of the pool and doing some poolside exercises and then getting back in the pool and swimming lengths, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's um, I, I did some research into... How do I take the intensity down into an hour? Like, so it's very, very high intensity, but not hurting yourself. So <laughs> I tried, you know, for my own self. And so, again, I was doing all this for myself. And I actually had some Navy guys come up to me and say, hey, will you do something for us? Can you coach us? So I, I ran a couple of free classes through the YMCA. It was just for fun. I was still working full time and these guys loved it so much. They were asking me for more workouts and I was like, I don't have time for this. I got, I got responsibilities. <laughs> so I put together a program for them that ultimately became the 30 day X-Win program 
with some slight alterations. And then some guy was like, hey, you know, you should try to, you know, share this with more people. And I was like, all right, I'll put it online. And one of the first videos I made was the Kelly Slater technique video. And yeah. I got so much great feedback from that. I was floored because I was like, why would anybody want to learn about paddling technique? <laughs> Even I was asking that because, you know, people, when they learn to surf, you guys know they want to get up and ride. They don't want to learn how to paddle. That's probably the most boring part. But as we all know, it's one of the most important parts. I would say, like, with our guests, the, the biggest thing is how could I improve my paddle? Like, and, and we do a paddle teaching technique in, in the pool. and Yeah, yeah. So I was actually trying to promote the X-Wing program when I put that first one out. And then people were like, can you teach us some more on technique? I said, sure. And I basically collected all my notes over those years that I was studying it for myself. And finally, th that basically became the Surfing Paddling Academy online course. And then from that, I started doing coaching at the pool. You know, similar to what you guys were doing, except I was walking along the side with a video camera and then we'd compare notes a lot like a swim coach would. And then we had the opportunity to move back to Northern California and I uh, ended up putting in the endless pool after discussing the effectiveness of that tool uh, with a former swim coach of University of Texas. She uses it for her swim stroke analysis. And I was like, oh, how do you, do you think a, a surfboard would fit in there? And she said, I don't know. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. And so it was funny that those <laughs> conversations I had with the endless pool guys were funny. And, and those initial couple months of that was, was really interesting. And now over the years, because I'm always constantly trying to find new research on it, there's two guys down at Cal State San Marcos that I've linked up with. And they've been studying surf paddling technique uh, more so from a fitness point of view. And so what we're doing together is a lot of the techniques that I teach, they're officially testing them. Even though I've empirically tested them, they're academically testing them. And they're trying to you know, really measure oxygen index and VO2 max with different techniques. And they found a, a lot of great correlations between the techniques and hopefully eventually we'll we'll come to some conclusions that we can then take to really the medical community and help people prevent shoulder injuries through better technique and so that's really exciting project that i get to work with them on yeah that's that sounds really interesting yeah there's not too many people studying it there's also a guy down at the hurley uh, performance center down in australia jeremy shepherd who i've contacted and he's done some correlating studies on uh, things like pull-ups and paddling power are are correlated. So it's, it's been it's been really fun over the last few years, and I hope that more people kind of get into it. Do you have a, a a scientific background? Did you study the sciences when you were at, at college, or is that something that you've picked up uh, on a, on an amateur level? Yeah, it's a great question. I I studied mathematics, so I'm beyond nerdiness <laughs> and it wasn't it was pure mathematics it wasn't even applied mathematics but that way of thinking is very analytical and uh, I always have that kind of scientific approach in my studies I, I, I kind of joke that I should have gone into physics because I really I kind of use some of the physics of motion and when I'm trying to explain paddling technique and how we move through the water but not officially trained in science. If you want to call mathematics a science or an art, it's kind of could go both ways. Yeah. 
it's really good to hear, you know, how much sort of A-B testing you did on yourself and, and how you're now really pushing for actual sort of empirical clinical evidence for the techniques that you're using. I think that's a, an abnormal attitude for people to take within the surf industry, but I think it's a very positive, uh, positively abnormal uh, thing. For, uh, it would be great if there was a lot more of that. You know, we, we come at it from a similar end in that there, there is no testing there is no evidence to support a lot of the surf coaching stuff and so we've had to go through and you know a b test different techniques and try and work out you know what is the best way to have somebody stand on a board yeah. uh, in a very similar way to, to to what you did and the next step that we would love to go through is is very similarly you know try and try and actually get some testing done although it's it's a little harder with with surfing technique because there are so many variables oh it's incredibly hard with with even just water you know, so the guys down at Cal State, they're having this issue just with how do you tie on uh, a sensor to, let's say, your hand, and how does it read underwater and then transition to out of the water? And they're having, even just with the technology, such an incredible amount of trouble with that. And, and that's within an endless pool, which is a very contained unit. You yeah. add the ocean in. I don't know how you would measure it. It, it must be, I, I'm looking forward, someone will figure it out and I'm excited to see that. That's interesting. I was having a conversation with one of our guests who used to work for uh, JPL, the, the Jet Propulsion Lab with NASA. And he was saying that the, that the biggest problem he saw with, with a lot of surfboard design things and that the paddling and stuff like that is just that you have this unbounded flow. The water can move up and down and where the line between water and air is yeah. at any given time is very variable at which point trying to model it just becomes so incredibly hard that's it's dead on exactly what these guys are dealing with down there uh, but i think they're getting close i think you know yeah. a lot of the studies they've been doing have been on uh, an ergometer you know the, the lie down and pull which is good but again it's completely different once you enter the water so you now have your set up, your facility that you've got set up at your house, and, and we've had quite a few of our clients from Surf Simply have, have gone to you and have done paddle training sessions with you. So for the, again, for those of our listeners that don't know you so well, what, what do you do when someone comes to, to see you and they want to improve their paddling? What does a, a sort of standard session look like? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fun. It's, I always get... A few boards that come in, they bring their own boards, and they got the Surf Simply sticker. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I'm starting to see more of those now. Yeah, um, <laughs> now it's really it's really cool. They so basically the first session is uh, it's about 50 minutes because one of the things that I understand quite well is that I throw a lot of information at people in a short amount of time, and it takes a while for the brain to to make those neuron connections so that it becomes an unconscious movement. So a lot of what I teach is really, um, I flood them with information, but then afterwards they have access to the online course and I tell them, okay, you do these specific drills so that you can make that uh, neuron connection to make the movements unconscious because we all have to start with conscious movement uh, so that our motor cortex can skip the basal ganglia and go right to the cerebellum, which is the unconscious movement area of the brain. And if we do it the right way enough times, uh, because the brain doesn't distinguish between quality uh, and repetition. You could do the bad thing over <laughs> and over again, and it'll still become an unconscious movement. So we need to consciously do the drills and consciously make the movements enough times that the, the brain's like, okay, now I'm understanding 
um, that that repetitive movement is something that you're doing all the time. And so I'm going to make it unconscious now. So a lot of the practice comes after the session. So we do the session. I usually get a baseline. So I have you get in with your board. And if you don't have your own board, you can use one of mine. And uh, we'll do some recordings. And then what's fun for me, because I love, I love teaching in this way, is, is I have them come up and I have them view the monitor. Because I have my video records and it's about a one-second delay. And so we can, I can see what's kind of happening live underwater and then we can re- we can review it right away. And that's why I love that tool. Even at the pool, I could do that somewhat, where at the end of the lap, I could review it with them. But having those extra few seconds between stopping them if they're doing something wrong so that they can really make that connection right when it's happening, that, that I've seen huge improvements based on that. So we do kind of a baseline, and then we, we review the video together, and we say, well, what do you think? <laughs> a lot of times I'm like, what do you think? Uh, does it look good to you? Does it look efficient to you? And people vary in how much they've already seen my stuff. Some people have never seen my stuff, and they come for the first time. And so at that point, it's a lot of me catching them up on the physics of how we're supposed to move through the water versus what we're seeing on the screen. And then based on that, what we're seeing on the screen, we – we choose a couple of areas to focus on and we do a couple drills and then get them paddling after the drill is done. And then at the very end of the session, we kind of retest again to see, you know, do, are we seeing some improvement already? We don't expect to see a lot of improvement because in 50 minutes, it'd be really hard for the brain to connect all that. But at the end, do we see any improvement? And then after that, they get a recording of all the videos. Plus, I add commentary on the videos so that they don't have to remember everything I tell them um, because that's very difficult. They're only going to retain about 10% of what I say uh, unless it's recorded. So um, having those recordings really helps out. And then I give them about three to four weeks for them to practice on their own. And uh, and then we revisit again. We either re-record and do it again or we do like a virtual coach session at that point. But um, the point is for them to, to get a couple tools that are specific to them and go off on their own and do it. Because there's only so much, I can't make them do the drills. That's the unfortunate part for me. I'd love to be there with them all the time. But unfortunately, I don't, yeah. I don't have that opportunity to. I have a quick question. When you get guests that come in, what are the most common errors that you see with their paddling? Wow, that's a great, great question, Jesse. Um, I actually do a whole video series with my subscribers on this. In in our show notes, we'll put some links to those. Yeah, yeah. So I'll start with one of the more recent ones that I've been seeing more and more often. A student came to me and she had a, a, bit, a bad shoulder problem. She even had surgery on her shoulder. And we looked at the baseline video and there were a few things that that I saw were, were inefficient, but the big concern for me was this pain she was having in the shoulder, and it had to do with overreaching. A lot of people reach as far out as they possibly can and then, and then take a stroke. And the problem with that is that when you reach all the way out there, now your arm is basically parallel to the surface of the water. And so when you push, if you push right from the surface, you're going to push down. And there's two problems with that. One, when we think about the three laws of motion, the third law of motion talks about action. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if you push down, then what's the reaction? You're going to go up. You're going to go up, right? And we don't want to go up. We want to go forward. 
right? Now, the brain wants us to go up because the brain doesn't like us being horizontal. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing with human beings. We don't like being horizontal in water. Can you guys guess it? Why that might be? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's... you go down if you're horizontal. Yeah, where, where's our breathing? Where's our breathing hole? Right, down it's on. The front. In, it's down in the front, and so if we're horizontal, imagine no board, and you're horizontal in the water. Right, there's right. no breathing, and so the human body naturally will go to the survival instinct when you're horizontal in water. You'll go to vertical, and that's just that's totally innate in in our brains uh, because we want to survive. And so when I teach swimming, that's the hardest thing to break is getting the brain used to feeling comfortable being horizontal in the water. And so when people, and it's not just the overreaching where I see this, I see this a lot. Even when people come in early, they'll still push down initially and pushing down is again, the brain's way of trying to keep us up. And it's a very natural thing for the body to do. What we're trying to do is break that. And so there's that cerebellum saying it's even deeper than the cerebellum. We're saying, hey, you've got to you've got to breathe. Uh, but once you get used to being horizontal in the water, you don't do that anymore. So the overreaching, that's one problem is that if people are pushing down, we're going up and that doesn't help us move forward. The other pro major problem with this that I saw with her was that she's reaching way out there over her head and then she's pressing down. So. People can try this at home. If they were to lay on their stomachs on the ground and put their arm over their head mm -hmm. and then push down on the ground, they're going to be using just their rotator cuff muscles at that point. So the, the lats right. will engage a little bit, but it's mostly those rotator cuff muscles. And their purpose is not to add power to our stroke. Their purpose is just to stabilize that shoulder joint. And so as they're pushing down, they're using these tiny little muscles and, and so that's where her pain was coming from, was that initial push down and reaching out so far. And so what we did is we did a couple of drills to help train her brain to enter sooner. One person can just, you know, mentally, hey, let me enter a little bit sooner. And depending on if you're on a longboard or a shortboard, you would extend that stroke forward or not. But essentially when you bring it in a little bit closer, you're not overreaching and then you can drop down into the phase of the stroke where you're using more of your lats and your pecs rather than your rotator cuff muscles. And so that's really one of the biggest mistakes I see that would affect someone's shoulder injury. I, so I had a, a, a quick question on that because you, you, you mentioned, I think, in one of your videos where depending on the board length, you know, if someone's riding a short board, there is some benefit to reaching forward and extending the waterline of the board. But yeah. I guess what you're saying is that if you do reach forward, you don't then want to be putting any power on. You just want to let your arm fall away with the flow of the water until it's in a position that you can apply your, your, your lats and your pectorals. Yeah, that's right. And it also has to do with the timing of your rotation. So when you're on a board that isn't as buoyant or has a shorter water line, as you, as you pointed out very clearly, that when you do enter, you still enter sooner. So when I enter, if you see any of the videos, uh, when I enter, I enter... Uh, a couple inches in front of my head, whether I'm on a longboard or a shortboard, I enter in the same general area. It's after I enter, which is the difference between the longboard and the shortboard. On a shortboard, I'm trying to extend that vessel and, and make sure that I get my stroke more efficient. I always have an arm out there at all times to extend that vessel. So what I'll do is I'll enter in that place and then I'll kind of 
stretch it out forward, but I'm not purposely trying to stretch it out. I'm just letting the rotation of my body from rail to rail extend my arm. You know, when you extend forward underwater and you're dead on at this point, you still don't want to push down. You would then, right. you can easily pitch your hand down to let your, your hand and forearm drop down so that you're in that phase where you can now push backwards instead of down. And, yeah. and a lot of people have probably done this in their life. If you're ever driving in a car and you stick your hand out the window and you pitch your hand up and down, and you kind of ride the wind. Yeah. That, that's the same feeling that you get when you're transitioning from that, what we call lift phase to the front propulsive phase is you just, all you need to do is pitch your hand down just a little bit and that oncoming water will hit the top of your hand and take that whole thing straight down. Then now you're in a good position to push straight back with the stroke. And that's yeah. on a, that's on a short board. On a long board, you skip that first phase altogether because that first phase its purpose is to lengthen the vessel on a shortboard. With a longboard, you don't need to lengthen the vessel because the water line is longer than you can reach. So what you would do is you would skip that phase and your entry would be much steeper above water and you go straight into that front propulsive phase so that your arm and forearm and your hand are in already in that position ready to push back through the stroke. So That's very cool. And so I guess I'd have a, a follow-up question with that then. When you're getting people to paddle, do you look for a different technique in different phases of paddling. You mentioned earlier on that, that you know, you, rather than sprint paddling, you just cruise paddled when you went out. Do you actually change much of the technique or is it just the rep rate that goes up when you go from, from cruising and paddling out to actually trying to sprint into a wave? Uh, another great question. Um, actually, there is a, a slight technique difference between cruising out and sprinting. And it's not just the arm stroke, but also uh, how you position your body and what you use, all the other tools at your dis disposal that you have. But the biggest thing in terms of the arm stroke is, one, you hit it dead on, your stroke rate goes up, right? So when yeah. you're catching a wave, your stroke rate needs to be faster. When you're sprinting, your stroke rate needs to be faster. Well, when your stroke ne rate needs to be faster, then you extending your arm out forward is not going to help with that goal. Um, you extending your arm out forward on a short board extends the whole arm stroke and so that plus you know even the s stroke which is one type of stroke that i teach that also extends the length of the stroke so again that's not a technique that you would use when catching a wave or sprinting so what you would do instead is you switch your hand pattern to what's called a deep catch pattern and then you skip the lift phase or you minimize that lift phase, that first phase where you're extending out, you minimize that so that you can get a higher stroke rate. And the, and the actual stroke, when you're paddling casually, the rotation usually can, you can drive from your hips to get that rotation from rail to rail. But when you're sprinting, in order to get a faster rotation, you have to drive from your shoulders. It's a more shoulder-driven stroke. And so you'll see this. Um, you, can, you can easily see this with swimmers. The difference between a sprint 50-meter swimmer and like a Katie de Ledecky in like the 800-meter. You see a huge difference in the way that they attack their stroke, um, their rotation, where it's coming from and also how long they leave that arm out in front of them. And so a lot of those transition well over into surfing paddling. Oh, that's awesome. I had another question as well, and I guess it was kind of coming from the common errors question I had earlier. 
arching the back is a is a huge thing that we see our surfers that come to the to the resort they want to lift their chest up so much and arch their back and i know you have a video on it but I thought that was going to be your most common error that you see someone maybe hyperextending their back. But I just wanted to get your opinion on it a little bit. Well, I, I think the video is called the most common fallacy and uh, mistaken belief. And I used to call it the, the San Clemente paddle because every, every client I saw that did that was like from San Clemente. And I don't know why, I don't know why that is, but you can also see it with Koloe and Dino. He kind of has that really high arch as well. That, uh, another one's called the proud paddle. And like I say in the video, there are some advantages in that you can now drop down in that front propulsive phase a lot faster when you're up that high, but it's a balance. So are you getting more propulsion or a higher efficiency within your stroke um, versus using so much energy to stay in that arch for two to three hours that you're out paddling? Uh, yeah. And the video very clearly shows just changing a few of the techniques, easing up on those back muscles, bringing that head a little bit more neutral. It doesn't need to be all the way down, but neutral, where you can still look around and, and, and see in the lineup. But now your body's flatter. And just like I was talking about before, when you have a flatter, more horizontal positioning in general, your whole system is more horizontal, you're going to be more efficient because there's two things that are happening. One, uh, there's less form drag in the back half of your body and board. So when you're arching your back, you're putting a heck of a lot more weight on the tail. And so even just a few inches makes a, a monumental difference in how much drag you're now experiencing underwater. And then the, the deadliest form of drag is actually the type of drag that you experience when you first get introduced to water in front of you, so-called frontal drag. Frontal drag is even worse than normal form drag because what happens is that you have to kind of break that resistance. A good way of thinking about it, I was just trying to explain it on an email this morning. Someone had a question about a video I just did just about the same thing. I tried to use the analogy of like a balloon. So if you if you take like a balloon that's blown up with air, and you kind of just put your finger into it, you're not going to pop it, right? Because your finger's not sharp enough. It's not blunt enough. You'll just kind of push into it, and it'll push back on you, mm -hmm. right? Action, reaction. So that's kind of what frontal drag is, is that until you can kind of break that frontal resistance with something a little bit sharper or more tapered than your finger in this case with the balloon, like say uh, scissors. Scissors are very sharp, <laughs> right? And that's going to break the outer core of that balloon so that you can continue through the balloon. Frontal drag is kind of like that where you want to turn now your fingers, your fingertips and your arm into kind of like a, a, a knife. And you want to break that frontal resistance first and then once it's broken then the water water loves to take the path of least resistance and so once you break that frontal drag with your hand or the tip of the board then the water is going to go around your arm it's going to go around your body a lot easier you're still going to experience drag you know water is yeah. so dense it's going to slow you down but you're trying to kind of find the best of the worst scenario here. <laughs> and the best yeah. thing to do is to kind of cut through that. So 
when you're arching your back, even if you're super far up on your board, now if you're trying to extend forward, you don't get that extension forward or that uh, lengthening of the vessel. A lot of people, when they arch their back, they're still skipping that phase of the stroke, and so they end up taking way more strokes than they absolutely need to. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's again, it's one of those things where do you want to spend more energy or do you want to be more efficient and catch more waves? A lot of people will choose the second one. Yeah, that's interesting. And then we don't want to be then hyperextended. But would I be right in saying that you don't actually want to be just, you don't want your back completely relaxed and your chest flat to the deck of the board? Because one, one of the things we see a lot is we have people coming in and we're taking them on their, you know, their first, second, third paddle out the back. Yeah. And by the end of those lessons, they can be very, very tired and the the first thing that we see tending to go is just that little lift in the back and the the chest then goes very very flat the yep. head is almost sort of lying on the side on the deck of the board <laughs> so that the elbow then tends to drop and, and yeah. y- you can see that someone's struggling so yeah. um i i've generally always told people you know don't hyperextend but do just try and keep that little arch in the back to keep everything going I think you're dead on in that you're, you you don't let's let's I'm a math guy so I take extremes let's completely eliminate any arch. So now when let's say we're on a longboard like somebody that's beginning maybe the first time they're going to the outside they're on like a mid-sized fun board. They're going to be using more of a longboard paddling technique at that point where you're going to enter at a steeper angle and you're going to try and skip that lift phase. If mm-hmm. you have a completely flat back then that's going to be really difficult to lift your arm up and dive your hand down at a higher angle with your elbow high. Um, Mm -hmm. So you have to have a little bit of an arch just to get that positioning going. It's just not as extreme, like you said, as most people think uh, when they they get there. So yeah, that should relieve them, but they should have a little bit more arch um, to do that. The the funny thing is that when you teach – the paddling to get in to catch a wave, then you do want to use possibly your head. There's four things that affect horizontal balance, the positioning where you are on the board, and there's usually a range. There's a uh, forward range and a back range. There's your where you hold your head, which is what we're talking about. Do you want it really high? Do you want it neutral? Or do you want it down even? Or, cl- or your chin almost touching the deck of the board. There's your feet. You know, We all know that we can use our feet uh, effectively. Um, shortboard paddling, there's some studies that show that kicking adds propulsion. They just don't know whether it's because it's adding propulsion or it's helping you lift the back half of your body and board higher in the water and more in uh, in line with the contour of the wave. Uh, but yeah. uh, overall, we know that it helps. On a longboard, above water kicking helps with propulsion moving forward through that undulation. Um, and then the last one is how much pressure you put on your chest. So, you know, the three of us know that when we're in a really steep wave, we have to press down on our chest. We need to make sure that our board is still flat to the contour of the wave while we're dropping down, kind of like we're dropping down into a half pipe at a skate park or something like that, Mm -hmm. or a quarter pipe. We want to make sure that we're in line with that curve. And so dropping the head, lifting even the feet on a shortboard, lifting the feet toward your butt even helps with that. Or um, dropping your head, your chin down, helps with that pressing down to get down the face of the wave. So all of those things uh, you kind of adjust on the fly 
So the first, I tell people all the time, I say the first thing you set is your positioning on the board. So look at your board with no weight on it while it's floating in the water. Watch how it kind of sits there horizontally. Now imagine weight being on it. How far under the water are you going to be? Or how far under the water is that person going to be? That's going to help you determine whether you're going to use a shortboard paddling stroke or a longboard or kind of in between. And then your positioning, you need to keep that same horizontal positioning with weight on the board that you see the board on the surface of the water. And that's the tough part. That's where some video will help. If you guys shoot from the side, them in still water, maybe in your pool, and you shoot from the side and you have them move up and down on the board until they feel like they're horizontal, take them to a point where they're so far on the uh, forward on the board that there's that now their feet are lifting up and the key thing here is to test all of this with their face in the water and that's the tough part <laughs> you gotta take a breath and then yeah. put their face in the water and both hands above their head and then once they find that kind of fulcrum where they're so far forward that their their feet feel like they're higher than their head that's as far forward as they'd ever want to be then they want to find kind of the back range by dropping their hands by their side and moving to the back part to see where that balance is. And then so that positioning you always set first and you change it last. A lot of beginners will always, when they feel like they're going to pearl either when they're paddling or they're catching away, the first instinct is push back on my board. I need to move back on my board, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's actually what I try and teach is no, that, that shouldn't be your first instinct. It should be adjust your head, adjust your feet, adjust your chest press before moving back. Because if you're positioned correctly, then that really should be the very last thing you adjust. Yeah. Well, and we, we find a lot as well that when people, when they, the, the tail is getting lifted by the wave, you know, the nose will catch mm -hmm. in the water a little bit, but yeah. actually if you keep paddling, if you keep that board trying to jump up on the plane, yep. it'll be fine. But if you stop paddling and try and slide yourself back, Yes. Like not, not only are you losing, as you lose speed, the board's going to come down off the plane and just dig the nose in even harder. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell um, uh, clients when they come here. I say, listen, if it starts to pearl and you've adjusted all these things, then paddle harder. Because think, think about this. I think the biggest aha moment for a lot of people is when I tell them, hey, listen, paddling doesn't catch the wave. Like there's no possible way you guys can paddle fast enough to stand on your surfboard without a wave, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it's a sup, unless it's a sup or you're really, really, really light on a longboard, but definitely not on a shortboard. You're going to sink. So how is it possible that we're able to ride on a wave? Well, it has to do with that planing speed that we become. So how do we get to that planing speed? Planing speed is much higher than the fastest we can paddle. The fastest we can paddle on a shortboard is, I haven't measured it exactly, but some people have tried and they're showing it's around three and a half to four miles an hour on a short. I actually some calculations, and I I think that the hull speed may actually slow you down enough on a short board. Like if you if you do the the basic hull speed calculations yeah. for a, a displacement hull, yeah, then it's I think it's only four miles an hour yeah. for yeah, a short board. I mean, it's it's really not not that fast and on a long board you're you're talking maybe a, a, a mile an hour or two faster maybe four or five at most so then you then what i was what i was realizing when you think about this i was looking at the molokai to oahu paddleboard race for the prone division and these guys are averaging over 32 miles they're averaging eight to ten miles an hour 
And I'm thinking, okay, I get out here on my lagoon on my paddleboard and I sprint, full on sprint, and I max out at about six miles an hour. There's no way these guys are paddling eight to 10 miles an hour over 32 miles. So how is that possible? Well, the only conclusion is that they're riding the waves, that gravity is helping them at times. And so that average goes up. And so when I tell people, listen, paddling, it doesn't catch the wave. Gravity catches the wave. That's how we can get to that speed. But what paddling does is it positions you in a better place to harness that gravity early in the in the ride, or it helps you get in earlier so that you can line up your first turn so that's more optimal in a, in a, a more optimal part of the wave, uh, and it helps us save energy so that we're not burning energy. So I think that's the big aha moment, and we're we're both on the same page. When you're starting to feel like you're going down, paddle harder, and you're going to get that surface pressure on the bottom of the board to get it back up. But it's hard to teach that, as you know. <laughs> it's, yes. that, uh, it's that uh, kind of scary moment for them. Oh my gosh, I'm going over the handlebars. Absolutely. So I, I've got one last question for you before we, uh, before we wrap this up. Do you ever find that people who come from a background that you've had with you know a lot of uh, swimming you know a lot of professional swim training is there ever anything from that background that actually hinders them when they're trying to paddle a surfboard that's a another great question yeah i i uh a lot of techniques translate over well but i've i've had many of my water polo teammates i mean we were we were at the going to Junior Olympics uh, in high school, and these guys, I take them out surfing, and they get exhausted trying yeah. to paddle and and battle with it. And so there is definitely a difference there. A lot of the things that I've kind of washed out between swimming and paddling have resolved a lot of those issues. I'm trying to think of some of the the key ones. And one of the mindsets that I tell them, I say, listen, paddling is more efficient than swimming. Because as you, as you increase your craft, you get that water line and you get the buoyancy advantage. And so there are things that when you're on a shortboard, on a very, very low volume shortboard, you are basically swimming with assistance. <laughs> a lot yeah. of the t- techniques translate over because you are so submerged in the water. But once you start increasing your buoyancy, once you increase that water line, you need to let the board do what it was designed to do and don't get in its way. And so yeah. the, that lift phase, that extension of the arm into the water, a lot of swimmers will translate that over because we were trained every day, always keep an arm out in front of you, always keep an arm out in front of you, and then replace your hand with your other hand once it comes around. But once you're on a longboard, you're just adding drag. I mean, that's you add that to the equation. As soon as you put your arm in, you're adding drag. So at that point, when you're above the water and you're so buoyant, your goal at that point is to not get in the way of the board's design. When yeah. you when you add drag, it had better add propulsion of some sort or right. prepare you to add propulsion. Whereas on a short board, you're trying to reduce resistive drag uh, through your technique more than you are on a long board. So I think that's one of the big things that I see swimmers come in and they, they think is exactly the same, so they're going to keep that arm out. So just to clarify with that one, when you go from a long board to a short board, obviously that now going to be limited actually by my arm length. For a, a tall guy, I'm, I'm six foot one, 
uh, you know, when I reach my arm above my head, I'm going out about eight foot in length. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, maybe someone who's a little smaller, someone who's only five foot, say, when they're reaching their arm out, that might only be a seven foot board. At what length of board, and, and maybe it's ah. relative to height, maybe it's not, but at what yeah. point should people be changing and, and starting to think, all right, I'm now on a board that's small enough yes. that I should be reaching forwards? Yeah, great question. I just had the same question come through. So when you do that test where you're looking at the board from the side, the horizontal balance, just visual, and then you put buoyancy on it, it depends on how buoyant you are on that board. That's essentially it. Because I can ride, I've ridden a uh, a 510 fish, but it rode so, it, it had so much volume that I was up out of the water. I was essentially using a longboard technique with that. Because right. uh, it was really had more to do with buoyancy at that point than the waterline at that point. It was more of a hybrid. I would still kind of enter, but I wouldn't leave it out there as long. And so it really is a combination of the waterline and the buoyancy. So uh, kind of a short answer would be if you are more out of the water than in the water, it's more of a longboard stroke. If you're submerged in the water, it's more of a shortboard stroke. Got you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you guys are interested. In I love talking about this stuff. And my wife always jokes because whenever I start, start talking surfing, I'm like, oh, I'll just be like 15 minutes. And like two hours later, I come back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm, it's always my pleasure to, to help out others. And I hope that people have learned at least a little bit from this and try it out. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions. And so where, where, should, uh, where should guys go if they want to find out a little bit more? If they, we've tickled their fancy with, with this little interview, then wh- where should they go to find out a bit more? <laughs> uh, yeah, surfingpaddling.com. I've got a surf blog on there that has a lot of great uh, free resources. They can also sign up for a free training series there or the online course or one-on-one or virtual coaching. It's all there at surfingpaddling.com. And then if they want to contact me directly, it's just simple. It's rob at surfingpaddling.com. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Listener emails. We uh, are still working on our backlog, so apologies to listeners that have, uh, have sent something in. We will get there, I promise. But uh, Tommy, do you want to lead us off on some? Yeah, we've, uh, we've got a listener email from Miguel Nito about videoing yourself, and he says, hey, guys. First of all, great job on the podcast. I still regularly daydream about my week at Surf Simply back in 2015. And listening to you guys once a month-ish is a great antidote to the nostalgia. It was super exciting to hear you considering online video coaching. I'd definitely be an early customer. I do wonder, though, what would be the best way to film yourself regularly while surfing? Personally, I've tried suggesting it to my nephews as a summer job, but they say they'd rather work at McDonald's (laughs) than watch me trying to surf for an hour. Would a GoPro or any other similar cameras do the trick? And if so, is there anything you'd recommend in particular? Thanks a lot and keep up the great and inspiring work. Well, thank you, Miguel, for such a positive email. It's good to hear that you're a fan. This is something that we can give some insight into firsthand because Asha, Harry, Jesse, all of us, in fact, on our free time, we'll group together and we'll do some video analysis. In terms of getting the footage... In-water footage can work, but you're going to need someone else filming you and they're going to have to be very, very fit. 
I wouldn't rec- recommend a, a GoPro just because uh, the field of view, you'd, you'd have to be very close to the, the surfer and more or less kind of predicting their turns and where they're going to go. You'd have to know they're surfing very well. And essentially, it's going to be a kind of inefficient way to, to be analyzing and reviewing your surfing just because you won't be getting that much good footage for the amount of swimming and surfing you'd have to do. Yeah, and a, a GoPro mounted on the board, you, it really just doesn't show... You can see what the person's body's doing, but you can't then see what they're doing on the wave. And that really is is the most important thing. You know, we can use a GoPro attached to the board to check little things. You know, is someone's foot in the right place or their arms in the right place. But beyond that, in terms of maneuver decisions and where they're doing the maneuvers, and it's, it's very, very difficult to see that from a board-mounted camera. You really need that third-person perspective. Yeah, so uh, in-water footage could help if it was uh, something with a slightly uh, a longer lens. And, you know, at Surf Simply, we sometimes use a, a drone as well, and that can be really good to look at foot position and, you know, a, a bird's-eye view of the surfer and, and where they're drawing the lines on the waves. But by far the most useful method we found is to just film from land so that you can see the wave as a whole and you can see where exactly you are posi- positioned on the waves and you can also see your body position from, from the land footage as well. So in terms of the best ways to do it, uh, we're lucky enough to have a group of co-workers and friends who uh, will team up on the weekend and we'll, we'll film each other. We, we'll either do 30 minutes or an hour's filming each and then rotate. And then we can sit down and video analyze ourselves or work as a team and you know look at each other's footage and help each other out. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that a lot of people don't don't think about is this idea of rotating and, and swapping in and swapping out on the camera. And it's very hard for one person to go, yeah, I won't surf this session. I'll just video. But to say, yeah, I'll video for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then I get my turn to go out and be videoed. Well, that's a much easier proposition to, to put to people. Have we done much research on a solar shot? Yeah, so we've played around. Uh, there's a company called SoloShot that they've created a little sort of motorized device that sits between the tripod and the camera. And that's then linked to a, a little sensor that you wear on your arm and it, it then tracks you as you're in the water. The downside, of course, is you've still got to find some way of stopping someone running off with your camera. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, if, if, if you've got someone that, you know, if you've got a partner that enjoys sitting on the beach and reading a book, then that's a great option. Beachfront house? Uh, well, a beachfront house would obviously <laughs> be ideal. Um, you know, maybe someone could have a, a service. There's always, you know, stories in the news about all these people in, in old people's homes that feel neglected. Maybe there could be a sort of a, a rent-a-granddad <laughs> scheme where, you know, you go, you go and pick up granddad and you take him to the beach and you, you hang out for a bit and he just watches the camera for a bit and then you, you – you, yeah. And then he disappears and we have a big problem. Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen. I don't, yeah, finding someone to sit, that's the real problem with the solo shot is persuading someone to sit and, and monitor that camera for you. Yeah, I, I know you've fallen on hard times trying to bribe your nephews to, uh, to record you, but I would say, you know, that is a valid final option is, you know, if you can find someone that you can pay and you know that you that you're happy with that financial transaction to just pay someone to stand on the beach and video you there are going to be people out there who will do it you know that there are always uh you know high school students that that are looking for 20 bucks to uh, go out and enjoy the weekend so you know i'm sure a little uh, craigslist advert may well turn up someone Make sure they know the difference between record and not recording <laughs> yeah. you might get some pretty dangerous 
responses on Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends what area of the country you live in. It can be a bit daunting to think of buying yourself a, a big lens, but actually the cameras that we use are relatively inexpensive. Yeah, I would say the, 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 the most important thing is you need a good optical zoom, but modern camcorders, you know, you, you can get a sub $200 camcorder that has 50 to 60 times optical zoom. And that's, that's really the sort of thing that you're looking for. I would say anything below 40 times optical. Just don't even look at digital zoom. It'll have 200 million times digital zoom, but that's, that's pointless because all that you're doing is just eventually watching a mosaic of pixels dancing around the screen. What you want is, is at least, I would say at least 40 times optical zoom so that you, you can then really close in on the subject. So yeah, at the risk of digressing too far from your question, as a, a good tip, where when you're coaching yourself and looking at video analysis, try and stick to working at one, maybe two things at a time and just mm-hmm. really focus on those and don't try and do too much. Yeah, I, definitely. We, we were talking about this uh, an episode or two ago. Go out with a drill in your head. Don't go out and free surf and then try and post-analyze yourself. Go out and say, okay, I am working on my bottom turns. I am working on my cutbacks. And then when you can get back to the the TV, you can analyze your cutbacks and your bottom turns. But if you just go out and free surf and then try and analyze it afterwards, it's it's not impossible. And it, it, it can be done, but it's way less productive. So yeah, anytime you go out with the camera on, definitely uh, definitely have that goal in mind. And I would say from my perspective as well, don't get angry when you make mistakes. Because I am terrible at it. I hate videos. I hate, I, I mean, I love it. I I'm, know that it's useful for me. It's really good. I'll sit and analyze the video. But at the time in the water, the ocean throws up so many variables. You're going to dig rail on a couple of turns. You're going to make mistakes. And the, the added pressure of the camera on the beach makes it even more likely that you will make those mistakes. I very often find I make a couple of mistakes and then I just feel like the whole session's a write-off and there's no point in me even being in the water. I'm just going to get out and give up. Uh, Jessie's sniggering away because she's seen, <laughs> she's seen me getting out of the water in that mode. We've done a lot of video sessions together where Harry just comes out of the water and doesn't talk to anyone. Yeah, just go off and have a little cry in my car. Okay. That is nearly all that we've got time for. But just quickly, before we go to our what to watches, you may have noticed that we have some new and exciting stings, or I think sometimes they're called bumpers. I got taught stings. I don't know. The little musical interludes that have gone between our pieces. Um, We put a shout out and thank you to everybody that sent in musical uh, stings for us. Some of them were pretty hilarious. They all put a smile on our face. The stings you're hearing this episode and probably on quite a few future ones were by John Greenberg. John can be reached through East Side, West Side music production. And uh, thank you very much, John. And uh, yeah, listeners, let us know what you think of them. Okay, Jesse, uh, what's your what to watch this week? Well, we all know Proximity has been seen and the trailer's out and we're all waiting for it to come out on DVD, especially in Costa Rica. But until then, The Chronicles, which is the making of Proximity, is really interesting. There's four episodes and the one that I would recommend is called Vibes. It follows Dave Rostovich and Stephanie Gilmore in Mexico. And yeah, it's really cool just to see how Taylor Steele makes his beautiful movies. Tommy, what you got for us? I was getting really excited for Fiji and I I look back to 2015 and Owen Wright getting four tens altogether, wasn't it, Asha? Four tens. Four tens. (laughs) Pretty incredible to watch. 
But then also um, the Seabast West Oz edit was just a lot of fun to watch. Ash, what do you got for us? Oh, since we got a little twin fin inspiration going this uh, this week, there's just a really good edit by the surfboard company iSymmetry, and it featured Tom Carroll and a young kid from Newcastle named Oscar Lebon. Le- I, I can't pronounce his last name, Leborn. <laughs> but anyway, he's a really stylish, goofy footer from Newcastle. I think he's 14 years old, but they're both riding twin fins in New Zealand. And it's just it's incredible. It's so well edited. It's so cool seeing Tom Carroll ripping and then uh, kind 